0: Good evening. <laughs> Tonight we'll hear the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and they're going to play only two pieces two symphonies by Johannes Brahms. That's it. No opening bonbon to warm things up, no concerto with a famous soloist, just two symphonies by Brahms. So this will be a very serious concert and I'm looking forward to it because the Chicago Symphony has always been a great Brahms orchestra. They have that rich full Germanic sound that's exactly right for Brahms music they have a great brass section, and over the last 80 years, they've made great recordings of Brahms symphonies with Fritz Reiner, Georg Schulte, James Levine, and others. This may be an all Brahms program, but it is a distinctive Brahms program. Conductors like to take Brahms symphonies on tour, and they always take either the first or the second, um, and that's because audiences love those two symphonies. They love the first for its dark drama, and they love the second for its beauty and its excitement. But orchestras never take the third symphony on tour, and I understand why. The third is one of Brahms' greatest works, but it is a very subtle piece of music. It is the shortest of Brahms' four symphonies, and all four of its movements end very quietly. Conductors do not want that when they go on tours. They want pieces that will have audiences leaping to their feet and screaming and they never take the third on tour. So I'm grateful to Riccardo Muti for taking the risk and bringing this very unusual combination of Brahms symphonies to Los Angeles. The third and the second make an unexpected pairing, but it's a good one and this should be a terrific concert. As you know, Brahms lived in Vienna, but he liked to get out of town during the summer when it was hot, and he spent his summers at beautiful resorts in Austria, Germany, and Switzerland. Mahler called himself a Sommerkomponist, a summer composer. He had time only to compose during the summers, and Brahms too was a Sommerkomponist. Brahms would spend his summers composing in these beautiful places, then he'd spend the rest of the year in Vienna where he'd revise what he had written, he'd edit and perform and conduct. Brahms composed the two symphonies that we'll hear this evening in two very different cities, and I'm going to call this lecture A Tale of Two Cities. In the summer of 1877, Brahms was on a train going back to Vienna when he got off to rest in a little town in central Austria right near the Italian border. Its name was Pirtschach, and it sits on the northern shore of the Werthersee, a lake about 10 miles long. It was absolutely beautiful there. Brahms fell in love with the place, and he decided not to go back to Vienna. He stayed in Perchak for the entire summer. To a friend, he wrote, the mountains all around the Blue Lake are white with snow, while the trees are covered with the most delicate green. Music poured out of him in Perchak. To Clara Schumann, Brahms wrote, so many melodies fly about here that one must be careful not to step on them. Brahms wrote his second symphony in Pirtschak that summer, and he liked the place so much that he came back the next two summers as well. In the summer of 1878, he wrote his first violin sonata, came back the following summer, and wrote his violin concerto there. The spirit of that setting makes itself felt on the second symphony, which is one of Brahms' sunniest pieces. The second has been called Brahms' pastoral symphony, relaxed and singing. The opening of the second symphony breathes an air of spaciousness and relaxation, and we feel that from the first instant. Now, that's such a beautiful beginning that it's easy to miss how ingeniously this symphony is made. The first thing you hear in this symphony are the cellos and basses playing a three-note pattern very deep, D, C-sharp, D. One note, down half a step, back up. Here it is. Listen carefully. Those three notes sound like nothing but Brahms is gonna build much of this symphony from that three note pattern. Here's the main theme of the first movement. That's a beautiful main theme, but did you notice the first three notes of that were on the same pattern? Yum da da da. Sometimes that pattern is in the accompaniment again and again, almost obsessively. One two three one. Two. enjoy this symphony and never be aware of that uh, pattern, but those notes are always there at an unconscious level, knitting this music together. In the hands of a lesser composer, it could become a dull obsession, but in the hands of a master like Brahms, he can make a 40-minute symphony out of that simple pattern. First movement of the second symphony is huge, and if the conductor takes the repeat, this movement can stretch out to 20 minutes long. Near the end of the movement, Brahms gives the French horn a long solo to wrap things up and it's the sort of solo horn players dream about. Chicago Symphony has always been famous for its brass section. Listen carefully for this solo tonight. It should make a golden sound that sails throughout the whole hall. I've spoken of the impact of Brahms' summer spent by a beautiful lake on this symphony, and I think I've called the symphony sunny a couple of times, but I should warn you, it's not all sunlight, and we feel some shadows in the slow movement. Brahms sets the second movement in B major, but the curious thing is this movement doesn't feel like it's in a major key. It feels dark and grieving as if it's in a minor key. I'll skip over the third movement and go to the finale. Brahms marks the last movement of the second symphony, Allegro con Spirito, and it is spirited indeed. This is a fun movement, and it makes a great ending to the symphony. It begins quietly, but it really goes. Notice what were the first three notes of that last movement? D, C sharp, D. Enjoy this music for the great symphony it is, but be aware of how beautifully it's made. Symphony is the work of a master. One last thing on the second symphony. One of the knocks on Brahms is that he was a dull orchestrator and that his music has the same gray dullness up to its sound. And if you compare Brahms to some of the other composers of his period, like Rimsky-Korsakov, or Wagner, or Strauss, or Mahler, then it's true. Brahms' orchestral sound does not have that kind of brilliance. But Brahms' orchestration is exactly right for the kind of music he wrote. It is a serious, powerful, dark sound. And sometimes Brahms' orchestration can sound brilliant. At the end of the second symphony, Brahms pushes his music ahead to one of the most exciting endings he ever wrote, and despite the knock on him as a dull orchestrator, his writing for brass can be thrilling. Listen. Right, that ending and the brass section of the Chicago Symphony should send you out the door very happy at the end of this concert tonight. Now we're going to jump ahead six years to the summer of 1883 when Brahms was 50. Brahms may have lived and died a lonely bachelor, but he fell in love with women all his life, usually with singers, And in January of 1883, it happened again. He heard a contralto named Ermina Spies. She was 26, she was slender, she had a beautiful husky voice, and Brahms was lost. He fell deeply in love. Ermina lived in Wiesbaden in western Germany, and so that summer, Brahms did not go to a beautiful summer resort. He moved to Wiesbaden for the summer. He got a bright sunny apartment that looked out over the Rhine and that summer with a view of the river and very much in love with a young woman, Brahms wrote his third symphony. It had been six years since he wrote the second and now at 50, Brahms was an even more accomplished composer. The symphony he wrote that summer is a very unusual one. I noted that the third is Brahms' shortest symphony and all four movements end very quietly. This is passionate, powerful music, but at the same time, it is a masterpiece of compression and economy. Third symphony gets off to a powerful start. Three huge chords and then the first theme comes crashing downward, like it's like a huge wave building up and then exploding downward. and look at that beginning one more time. Those rising first three chords, and they're built on F, A flat, F, will recur hundreds of times in the first movement. Brahms said that they spelled out his personal motto, F-A-F, in German, frei aber froh, free but happy. And I'll say in passing, if that was Brahms' personal motto, it's probably a good thing he did not get married. But. those three chords are the first things that you're going to hear in this symphony, but then Brahms immediately brings, takes them from the start and puts them underneath the main theme and builds the accompaniment out of them. Listen to that beginning again, listen to those three chords and listen to them then come back beneath the theme. Brahms uses those three notes as parts of themes, as part of the accompaniment, as background filigree. The first movement is saturated with those three notes. Right now I want to show you something completely different. 30 years before Brahms wrote his third symphony, Robert Schumann also wrote his third symphony, and like Brahms, Schumann wrote it while he was looking out at the Rhine River. Schumann lived in Düsseldorf. In fact, Schumann's third was inspired by the Rhine River. We know it as his Rhenish symphony. Schumann, when Brahms was a young man, Schumann had championed him, and for the rest of his life, Brahms remembered Schumann with love and gratitude. It's hard not to feel as Brahms looked out over the Rhine and composed his third symphony that his thoughts went back 30 years to Schumann's earlier symphony about the Rhine. And that shows up in this music. The main themes of the symphonies Schumann and Brahms wrote by the Rhine River are related. I'll play you a little of Schumann's first movement, his depiction of the Rhine, then a bit of Brahms' first movement. Do you hear a similarity? Here's Schumann. Here's Brahms. would have worked much better if I'd gotten it to play. It's exactly the same thing and you feel that subconsciously um, in Brahms. It's not in any sense plagiarism, I think it's unconscious. It's a reminder of how important Schumann was to Brahms and when Brahms wrote his symphony looking out over the Rhine, he remembered Schumann's symphony looking out over that same river. This is a big, powerful moment, but we get to the end and we get a surprise. That beginning may have been heroic, a wave crashing down, but the ending is not. And in fact, it's very quiet. And I'm going to play you the ending. I want you to listen for a couple of things. First, that three-note figure that'll come driving up out of the bottom to make it happen. Then listen for the main theme. Remember how it came crashing down at the beginning like a mighty wave? Now it's slow and measured and peaceful and calm. Here's the ending of this powerful movement. It's a very beautiful and a very subtle ending, but it is exactly what we don't expect when we hear that beginning. I'm going to skip over the second movement and go to the third, which opens with one of the most beautiful melodies Brahms ever wrote. Here, he gives it to the cellos. Now, that's a great theme, and Brahms knew it, and I pointed out that he was never known as a great orchestra, but when he brings that theme back later, he does it beautifully, takes it from the cellos, gives it to a solo French horn. Clara Schumann said that she felt that this symphony took her deep into a forest, and we might feel that here when the horn sounds as if it's coming from far, far away. This is beautiful writing. Now, I'll tell you a story here. My children spent years trying to get me interested in popular music, and one day they brought me a song they told me that they knew I'd like. It's a Carlos Santana, Dave Matthews song called Love of My Life. Let me get the Brahms theme in your head again, then listen to Carlos Santana. Here's Brahms. Now, here's Santana. You got it gold Carlos Santana. Get out, I looked up the reviews of the Santana album and the reviewer liked this song and said that it had a nice pop tune. That (laughs) pop tune is probably the only hit Brahms ever wrote, but it's a good one. The last movement gets off to a start that we would expect. It's fast, it's ominous, it's powerful, and suddenly it explodes. I want to show you one other spot along the way because it is typical of this very unusual symphony. As we know, Brahms writes good tonal music, he does not assault our ears, harmonically he's a safe composer, maybe. Because there are a couple of places in this movement that are full of shrieking dissonances. The movement rushes along and into it Brahms drops a couple of chords so dissonant that you can hardly believe that Brahms wrote them. It's surprising and conductors aren't sure what to do with those chords. Some play them down as if to say Brahms didn't really mean this and some conductors understand that, um, that Brahms did mean it. That dissonance is part of the movement and they land on that chord like a bond. I'm going to show you examples. Here is a fairly straightforward, understated uh, performance of that passage. All right, that sounds normal enough. We can all live with that. Here is Carlo Maria Giulini. Alright, that was Brahms? You bet it was. Uh, Watch and see how they handle that chord tonight. Will they let it ring out like a shriek, or will they underplay it and hide it and play it safe? Listen for the chord, it comes back several times. We get to the very end of this movement and the tensions begin to lift. Brahms moves from F minor to F major, sunlight breaks through the dark clouds, and then we get more surprises. Brahms begins to bring back themes that we've heard in earlier movements and at the very end, in the biggest surprise of the symphony, he goes all the way back to the very beginning of the symphony and concludes at just the point he began with its opening theme. At the beginning, that theme came crashing down like a mighty wave, but now it returns in utter calm and this symphony ends in complete peace. that ending surprises everyone oh, sorry including me i will say <laughs> that ending surprises everyone and people hear quite different things in it clara schumann thought this symphony was about the deep woods someone else hears the sunset in a garden at the end of the symphony other people hear falling leaves each of you will hear something else it's that kind of ending Brahms Third Symphony will send you out to intermission very quietly tonight and you can understand why conductors don't like to take this music on tours. They want pieces that will fire audiences up and leave them cheering. This one won't do that. The Third Symphony is a very passionate piece but it's a very subtle one too. Many people will tell you that Brahms Third is their favorite of his four symphonies and I understand why. This should be a concert you remember. First, it's the Chicago. <coughs> sorry,. Sh- Chicago. <coughs> sorry. The Chicago Symphony, <coughs> one of the greatest orchestras in the world, one with a brilliant brass section. <coughs> and will sorry, just for a moment) <coughs> First, it's the Chicago Symphony, one of the greatest orchestras in the world and one with a brilliant brass section, and we'll hear that tonight. But the other reason to remember this concert is Brahms, and I'm very glad Ricardo Moody has chosen Brahms' two middle symphonies. As you listen to these symphonies tonight, I'd like you to think about the place where each of them was written. I've called this lecture A Tale of Two Cities. Second was written in Perchak on the edge of a sunny lake surrounded by trees and snowy mountains. We'll certainly hear that and we'll also sense some of the shade back in the deep woods around the lake. Brahms wrote the third in Wiesbaden in a sunny apartment looking out over the Brahms, uh, over the Rhine. He was a composer at the height of his powers who just happened to be madly in love. I don't want you to listen to this concert as a travelogue. Listen to these two symphonies as the great music they are, but it's hard not to feel that two very different places put their individual stamp on these two symphonies. And we can be glad they did. Thanks very much.